Podcast 021, Mason Bees with Dave Hunter. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. There, we're we're recording. So uh, this is Paul Wheaton, Lord of the Jungle, your your Lord and Master, uh, and I'm here with Dave Hunter, who's uh, uh, keen on the bees. Keen uh, on the bees. Yep. And, and uh, most specifically, um, we just he just showed me a whole bunch of these mason bees, and I learned I don't know like a hundred times more than I ever knew about mason bees, and um, they're they're like way cooler than I thought. Um, but before we start getting talking about mason bees, I, I want to first talk about <clears throat> um, colony collapse disorder and the information that's out there right now. And so I know that you all have looked at my uh, video on colony collapse disorder. Um, but, you know, Dave, have you seen my video on colony collapse? No, I must confess, Paul, I haven't seen it. Oh, man, that's, uh, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to refer to that 20 times I, in the next half hour. Should have, you know, I'm guilty as charged. Okay, so uh-huh. not having seen it, I do read quite a bit from scientists who are going back and forth. I'm part of whatever little monitoring system, and I read a lot, but I'm not a scientist. I am just a nice guy, Dave Hunter, NG. Nice, nice guy. guy. So, uh, uh, do you do you have papers to validate that you're a nice guy? I mean, <laughs> my wife loves me. <laughs> Yeah, but she could be biased. Well, she, could, she could be biased, right? So, Dave Hunter NG has an opinion that I've been able to um, accumulate, and I do feel that CCD, colony class disorder, is a very scary um, issue that faces us. So, I I agree with that. And um, uh, I want to try and remember from from the little video that I made. And so I made, I don't know, do you you know Jacqueline Freeman? She's that lady you talked with a while ago. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, Oh, uh, that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't know who she is. So, so, okay, Jacqueline Freeman, uh, she's she's the one that's in my uh, Colony Collapse Disorder video. Of course, the one I haven't seen. The one you haven't seen. And uh, uh, and she's been in a few of my videos, and I know you've seen at least a few of my videos. Uh, And, um, but I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember, like, it seems like during that video, there were 12 things that we came up with that would prevent colony collapse disorder, and um, I'm prevent it, or that are that are causing it could be causing it. Well, I by I'm going to say go with prevent, which would then equate to could be contributors to. Oh, okay, good. And so um, <clears throat> you know, one was uh, organic practices. One was uh, to stop using the the, the uh, transitory kind of thing. Yeah, and then. Uh, Better uh, diet. Pe- the use of pesticides. Oh, polycultures. The right, use polycultures. of polycultures. Pesticides in a two-mile radius of where you're raising them. Try that. Right. So part of what uh, Jacqueline was saying was to uh, try to educate your neighbors, you know. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the lesser things that came up at the end was uh, keep the hives up off of the ground. Um, that when you have them close to the ground, that leads to moisture, which leads to, you know, yucky things. I mean, if you think about it, when, when bees, when honeybees are in nature, where do they go? They, I mean, aren't they usually in an old stump? Honeybees are typically higher. Bumblebees are in the ground, but the honeybee is typically higher. Yeah. So I've, anytime I've seen honeybees in nature, like they've made honeycomb in nature, it's like inside of uh, a hollow 
that tree somewhere, and it, it's usually quite high up. Where I'm going to disagree a little bit, not having seen the video, um, the other side of the coin is that we all want to have cheap apples. And to have cheap apples, cheap pears or whatever, it, for the farmer, he wants to have one set of equipment, one set of labors to pick and to harvest and to the, the commercial versus organic uh, to keep the apples as cheap as possible, you've got a monoculture. And with that monoculture, you now can't sustain a native bee pollination because you've got two weeks of food, 50 weeks of Sahara Desert. So as much as I'd like to say polyculture is great, it'd be great to have just a hive here, Think of trying to raise all of your almonds. They really just grow inside the Sacramento or uh, Modesto through Bakersfield, 650,000 acres. Think of trying to sustain uh, 1.5 million hives in that place. It's desert. There's only there's only four weeks of bloom. Well, <clears throat> you don't get almonds then. You don't get almonds. So so now this uh, this is awesome because uh, most of the people that I talk to are very familiar with permaculture and the reasons why we advocate permaculture. And um, so I, I think that, and I, at the same time, I think that a lot of people who listen, all of the pod people that are out there trying probably to listen more listen to your side of the world, yeah. They, they, they're like probably, I, I know that they want me to talk about certain things, and so now you've, you've hit the button. <laughs> Ooh, so, so, so no, no, it's good because now they get to hear me talk about it. <clears throat> and, and so... Um, and in the video, in the Colony Collapses Order video, I, I think that Jacqueline just touches on it. And that is that, you know, go down to where those almond orchards are, where they've got the almond monoculture, or any kind of monoculture uh, uh, scenario, where you're right. Two weeks out of the year, it's um, feasting, and then uh, 50 weeks out of the year, it's a desert. Right. Total famine, and uh, and so she was saying, you know what, you can go and plant 50 different species in the understory. Uh, you know of of these trees, and and you would have enough to keep the bees sustained. But now you realize that that's a water shortage in California. That I'd have to keep those uh, that undergrowth going. They're they're actually they don't have enough water down there, and so I've now wasted for those bees. I've wasted a lot of water that needs to actually go to L.A. So uh, if if you stop watering. It turns back to desert. So, so now a, a lot of the uh, the stuff that um, we do. In fact, I, I think uh, I've got a, a podcast out with a, a Jack Spierko stuff um, talking about how to replace irrigation with permaculture, so you never have to irrigate. And um, and I've I've got a podcast out there where I interviewed Maddie Harland of Permaculture Magazine, and we talked about the works of Sepp Holzer and how he went to that place uh, in in Portugal where they get three inches of rain a year, and they have massive, beautiful gardens. And uh, Maddie, if you're listening, I still need you to send me those pictures. Uh, and, uh, I'm out of my league here. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, yeah, it's out of my league. <laughs> hmm. Let's go, Dave. Let's yeah. dance. Yeah. Let's dance. Dave's backing down slowly. <laughs> and actually, you know, well, let's talk about something, because something, you could have other trees. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's convenient to be able to raise just almonds. And pistachios, those things that go down there. Or just one thing, in a monoculture, it's convenient if it's going to be machine harvested and you're going to always do the exact same thing. You're trying to keep the cost down. And, and you know, but see, here's, what, here's the thing with permaculture is that we're, you know, at least from the permaculture that I advocate, I mean, granted, there's a lot of people out there that sing the permaculture song, mm -hmm. and um, they're not looking to make any money at all. 
And so I'm more of the Seth Holzer camp where it's like, you know what? I want to be that guy that's raising almonds, and I make uh, 10 times more money than per acre than the other almond growers. And so, and I believe that through permaculture, I can do that. So I want to, I want to go out, and I want to take that same acre, and I want to cut back the number of almond trees by a factor of 10 on that acre. And and so, and then in between all the almond trees, I'm going to grow 40 other crops. And um, and then as it turns out that while I've got uh, uh, 10 times fewer almond trees, that my almond production will be higher per, I mean, you know, considering there's 10 times few trees, it won't, I won't have higher almond production per acre, but even though I've got uh, 10 times fewer trees, I might have only five times fewer, five times less almond production per acre. And then I'll also have other things that get produced. And then, you know, through the polyculture aspect of it, then um, I can eliminate my uh, fertilizer costs, my irrigation costs. Your pesticide costs. I eliminate my pesticide costs. Yes. See? Potentially. I mean, pests are still going to come inside there. They are, but then they're not a problem. But you've still got fungicide that, you know, you've got you've got trees that have fungus because they're in the east side or the north side of the valley, so they still need to be sprayed. No, and in permaculture world, we don't need to spray. And, and uh, we don't need to, I mean, suddenly all those problems just, go away. It would be, I certainly am out of my realm by saying some of the major almond companies would love to um, try this out on a small smidgen of acreage to see, prove right or wrong, that this uh, could work. It would be interesting. I do have connections to some of the science teams out there that um, I think I'd be laughed out because this is the common understanding through years of science and what right. you're talking about is um, not going to the MD but going to the OD, whatever the um, you know, the, the well, fuzzy side. So I, I think I think along those lines, I, I love the story of when Sepulcher goes to Spain. So we, we heard about Sepulcher in, in Portugal. But Sepulcher goes out to, to Spain and um, there's something like a, like twenty thousand acres out there and there's something like twenty different so called experts and Sepulcher is considered to be one of those experts. And uh, it, my impression is, is that they each are given a slice of land to play on, but uh, the 19 of them are concerned that this one guy is a lunatic. And, um, and instead of paying attention to their own damn chunk of land, they all seem to be concentrating all of their attention on the lunatic's land, hmm. and they won't seem, they don't, they can't seem to go away. <laughs> and so, uh, it's, it's a, basically, I'm thinking this sounds a lot like what you're, what you're saying. So, so I'm going to bend you a bit, okay? Oh, well, let me, let me finish the story real quick. So, of okay. course, on Sepp Holter's chunk, where he does this stuff, not only, so we're talking about a chunk of desert, three inches of rain a year. And on this chunk of desert, uh, where there's like uh, uh, mostly sand, there's a little bit of scrub once in a while, and then there's these dying oak trees everywhere, these very old oaks that are on the edge of death. And on this chunk of land, Sep decides there used to be lakes here, which the other experts say, no, there were never lakes here. Sep brings back the lakes. So here in a desert, you now have lakes. And then plants a variety of different gardens, and uh, uh, his gardens are not irrigated, and he's using uh, a lot of hugelkultur techniques. And uh, 
on one of the gardens, because people are paying attention to his stuff so much, uh, they're saying that everything's going to die unless you irrigate it. So on one of them, on one of the hugelkultur rows, he irrigates it. And then for the first year, the, the irrigated and the non-irrigated do about the same. And the second year, they decide to take out the irrigation. I mean, why pay for irrigation if it doesn't seem to do any good? And everything in that row died. So um, uh, because the plants become dependent upon the irrigation. So the 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 thing is is that this is this is permaculture. This is this this I the stuff that's like beyond the comprehension of most of our our conventional thinking brethren. And um, and so yeah, you have your scientists that you were just talking about, Dave. And so yes, if you were to go to these scientists with permaculture uh, ideas, then then it, indeed it is true. They would think you're nuts and they'd shout you down and you wouldn't get a chance. So in the area that I do understand it more. Blue Orchard bees, Mason bees, um, what surprised me quite a bit was that the um, agricultural industry changes at the speed of a glacier. You know, they, they, they have got, every farmer has got a series of variables that they're worried about. How much do I fertilize? What's the cost of labor? Am I doing the right crop? What's the weather going to be like? One of the constants out there is, hey, Bob, I need some bees. And Bob delivers the bees and your stuff gets pollinated. So to introduce a variable, um, let me see if I can try some other pollinator. Ooh, I don't want to have another variable that I've got to play with. So across America, most, I'm going to say most, um, of your crops, be it orchards or crops, uh, where you need pollination, they only re- rely upon Bob, the bee guy. So I, I, I recognize that that's, that's the only way to go. Uh, as I started investigating about two years ago, uh, gosh, studies since the 80s show that the blue orchard bee, one of the mason bees, is a significant pollinator of cherries. Uh, you'll get double or triple the yield. Scientific studies over, over 10 years showed this in your cherries. Every apple they touch, not everyone, but most of the apples are whole-sided and better apples. So this is all done in the 80s by uh, Professor uh, Phil Torchio. Wonderful write-ups. Now I'm analyzing this. Why haven't people changed to the Blue Orchard Bee? Well, they, they don't want to. And I, I called around quite a few people, and I'm going to say uh, two of the, the chief scientists, uh, Jordy Bosch and Bill Kemp, are, uh, wrote this great book on the Blue Orchard Bee, uh, How to Manage uh, the Mason Bee, uh, something along those lines. Um, two good doctors or professors. I, I spoke with one of the two of them. And he said, Dave, you got to realize that, you know, he talked about the speed of a glacier. And he said that, um, he goes, it's just going to be probably more of a sociological issue than it is a scientific issue. That only when your neighbor is starting to get better crops than you, and you're out there having uh, a cup of coffee with the morning, you know, now that your neighbor's doing it, maybe I'll do it too. And that's, he said, that's the only way you're probably going to get another insect out there. You know, he says it's a sociological issue, not a physiological or whatever you want to call it. I think it has a lot of weight. I mean, you know, a lot of these guys, you're right. I mean, they've been going down a path and they've been optimizing that one path for a long time. They have a massive knowledge set about their path and how to fine-tune that path. That the idea 
of ripping out a quarter of their knowledge to replace it with something else and to have to start re-optimizing all over again. It would be like uh, moving from a PC to a Mac. I mean, you're getting all your stuff done on a PC. Why Everybody keeps saying go to a Mac. And it's like, are they really getting more stuff done or, you know? Yeah, the other part out there is that the honeybee industry is uh, well-established. It's a wonderful insect. So I'm not, you know, don't get me wrong. The honeybee is a wonderful insect. And I'm only really talking about this because it seems to be failing. Uh, but they're very well-established. They've got relationships. They understand the, the farmers, and it's all there. To try to introduce another insect into a well-established infrastructure is, um, is tough. And the honeybee people... Uh, from what I understand, uh, they're faced with a lot of issues. It, their bee is not working well for them. Uh, the commercial orchard, the commercial honeybee guys, are losing huge quantities of insects a year. They're able to split hives, but they're starting out weaker, and, and it's it's tough. From what I I'm also understanding is that these guys are no longer producing honey. Uh, they're keeping honey a lot of these guys, which is part of their bread and butter. They're keeping honey to maintain the hive through the winter. And so a lot of our honey is off the U.S. It's Chinese or Mexico honey. And so uh, these guys are trying to save their insects. And I understand that it's getting grayer and grayer, meaning not a lot of young blood are out there taking on um, uh, ownership of hives. It's their dads, and their, their dads are getting older, and the average age is, I don't know, 60 or 70 or 50. I don't know what it is. But it's the whole contractors, or what do you call it, uh, honeybee apiator apiary yeah those guys apiary yes yeah you know I always, I've heard of they're getting older they're getting older because um, it's a very tough industry to maintain your bees and yep. not, but I'm saying it's bad <clears throat> it's just getting tougher and they also surprisingly aren't looking for alternatives and I'm working with uh, an alternative that uh, seems to be uh, a viable pollinator, I'm doing all I can do to help keep food on the table in 10 years. And so I'm probably more of a strategist that I see um, I'm in the Gulf well or the Gulf well mess that happened last summer. Uh, BP didn't just go out there and, and only cap the well. They had two side shafts. In the Chilean minor rescue, you had the primary shaft going down. They had two side shafts as well. So right now, Save the Bee is the only resolution that everyone is going to. We should be looking at side shafts. You should be looking at other insects to pollinate your crops. And I'm trying to be one of those side shafts. Plan B. Plan B. You're trying to pull together Plan B because, it, it, you know, now maybe maybe this is a good time. I want I would like to just take a moment. And let's let's go back to where we were talking about colony collapse disorder for Plan A, and um, let's let's see if we could how many things we could think of that we know of that are ways to prevent colony collapse disorder just off the top of because it just seems like in this we should we should talk about that real quick and so we 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 covered a few um, I think we both agree that the whole thing about the cell phones I mean not there not there yeah and um, uh, a big one I thought was miticides. 
So a lot of these, in fact, when I made my video, I was really sure that it was the miticides that were the problem. I mean, basically, miticide is a kind of an insecticide, well, although mites are actually an arachnid. But um, the thing is, is that um, it's, it's a toxin. It's a toxin to humans, too. It's a toxin to mammals. They could be weakening the bees. Right. I mean, basically, you try to put it on in such a way that you give it on the mites, not get it on the bees, because it, you know, it hurts the bees, too. And, um, and it hurts us. You know, when we eat the honey that has the miticides in it, that's not good for us either. I've um, heard uh, you could uh, shorten, uh, shrink the hole a bit. Uh, the, right, the cell. The cell, because we've tried to increase our honey production, and by having too large a cell allows the mites to stay in there potentially. And uh, it, right, and gives them a longer gestation period to get established. Um, I've heard and, that. Yeah, I've heard that too. Uh, I've also uh, heard from people that said that um, that if they uh, set um, uh, if they try to encourage the the larger cell size, the bees just make a smaller cell size. I'm not sure I'd buy into that, um, but I, I've heard that. And then. Um, uh, I'd have to say that, uh, you know, polyculture is a big one. If nothing else, just like different kinds. I mean, if you just sit around and eat nothing but peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for two weeks, that's not nearly as good as having peanut butter and jelly sandwich once a day every day along with other five different kinds of sandwiches or whatever. So a mono diet is probably not healthy for the bee. It probably didn't evolve that way. True. Right? True. So it's, it's not built that way. And so to provide corn syrup only through the winter is probably not healthy. True. Sure, that's one of the items. Yeah. Um, let, let them eat their own honey. Yeah. Again, I'm not. <laughs> I'm past my realm. These are only things that I've heard. No, no, yeah, no. I, I, and I think that uh, I think going based upon the things that we've heard is. Uh, um, I mean, we're still miles ahead of the people that have no idea. I mean, of course, those two fellows out in Montana came up with, they, they think that colony collapse disorder is caused by a virus and a fungus together. And the army. The Army and the right. years in Montana. And, right. but, but the thing is, is it's like, uh, and I, a point that was made in my video, and it also was made in some other of, of the movies that have come out recently, is that, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you go and you attack a hive with um, eight different things. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, you, you move it a thousand miles, you take away their honey and replace it with sugar water, and then the, when they go out to forage, all the crops that they find are caked in pesticides, specifically insecticides, and bees are insects. Yeah. Um, I mean, what did you think is going to happen? Well, one of the scientists also that I spoke with uh, when that issue came out, that solution with Montana um, University in the Army, uh, she said, Dave, she said virus. You really can't solve viruses. If I say you've got cancer, that doesn't mean you're solved. So she was saying that she threw in the towel. She said a virus is a very scary item, and it's going to be years to see if we can ever solve that, if they can solve it. Yeah, so, but why go about? I mean, well, how is it? Okay, so how is it that, that bees were able to survive? I mean, so the virus is there. I mean, the thing there's 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 thousands of different things that could kill the bees already there in the hive. And as you bring them all together in 650,000 acres, all your you're swapping diseases and pests and viruses that swap. You know, so don't bring them all together to orchards. You know, stop transporting the bee. It, it's a problem. You know. I, well, okay, so the point in my video, I mean, there's more, there's more sure, stuff sure. here, but the point was, is like, if, if you just stop abusing the bee, 
the bee will be stronger. And then those viruses that are there, the bee's natural immune system will keep the virus in check. But then, you know, this is your opinion. Um, well, this was this was what we were. I'm not arguing. This, this is what was presented in the in the video. Okay. This is what was being presented in the video. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, but the thing is, is that if if you do uh, eight different things, you know, if you uh, and and weaken the bee in eight different ways, then it becomes susceptible. I mean, this is nature. This is how nature works. If you've got a weak bee, then nature's got viruses and funguses and all kinds of things waiting to move in on the weak bees and fix this problem. This is how this is how nature is designed. This is how nature works. So um, that another one was uh, um, breeding, you know, um, as opposed to like natural breeding where um, you've got the queen flying up and then the drones find the queen and then, you know, uh, um, hives are uh, being split to do that. And then they, they swarm, mm -hmm. uh, naturally swarm because the hive has grown large and strong. Mm -hmm. um, rather than doing that, they're doing the thing where they, they breed based upon quantity instead of survival of the fittest. And so now you're ending up with breeds that are the ones that are supposed to fail because that's part of the design. That you know there, there's going to be strong hives and the strong will survive, and then the weak ones will not. So all right, all right. So now we we've kind of talked about colony collapse sort of for a little bit. Now we can move back to talking about Plan B, alternative bees. Yeah. Okay. So we've got to realize that the honeybee lives four to six weeks. The queen lives longer, but the honeybee lives four to six weeks. Right. Its wings only flap so many times. But, like the bumblebee, these guys are constantly reproducing themselves all summer long, so the hive essentially lasts year-round. When we're looking at solitaire bees, they only live four to six weeks, and that's it. They're dead. And their young survive, change, hatch into pupa. The pupa, in the case of this blue, the mason bees typically, will spin a cocoon. They metamorphose through uh, a portion of the year. And in the blue orchard bee and the horn-faced bee, these guys then uh, become adult bees by fall, overwinter as an adult bee in a cocoon, and come out again just in time. So they are only flying four to six weeks. But there are a variety of bees that go through different parts of the summer. There's a spring mason bees. There's uh, berry bees. And then there are uh, melon bees, and these all have their different heat cues, and they come out at various temperatures of the year. So there's, there's probably 125 different species of mason bees that uh, use in their, their uh, cell construction mud, resin, uh, leaf bits, so leaf cutters, uh, pebbles, uh, masticated uh, vegetation, but these all go into holes, and they have their young in holes and only live four to six weeks. So then, rather than having a queen, every female is a queen. Then every female is a queen. All right, so, so in, well, in this it's, it's a little bit more normal, like, it's, it's more like mammalian reproduction or something like that. Rather than having, they're not exactly like queens, it's a... It's a, it's a a little bit more distributed. It's a little bit more humanesque. Less sophisticated. A honeybee, bumblebee, you know, they're very sophisticated hives. They've got nectar gatherers, pollen gatherers, centuries, nurses, drone. I mean, they've got a variety of duties. In the blue orchard or the mason bees, 
boy, girl. Boy mates and is dead in two weeks. Girls does everything else. I mean, it's, it's very simple. Right. Lots right. Less sophisticated. And then um, uh, how many, uh, so, so then the female will um, uh, go out, gather baby food, stuff it into the little, into the little tube. Yep. Put an egg down there. Pluck a little bit of mud to separate that little uh, cell, and then start again. Pollen, egg, mud, and you might, in a straw, depending upon your species, you might have anywhere from six eggs in a six-inch tube to uh, 20, depends upon the species. So now, will they, uh, when... And then the lady dies. She's dead. Right. 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 But then during her lifetime, she she might have filled uh, a, a dozen tubes? Um, depends upon the species. But the blue orchard will maybe lay, can lay 20-some eggs, but typically 15, 16 eggs before she's dead. Okay. So if you have, if you're raising these things well, 100 bees, cocoons, uh, should get you two or 300 the next year. I mean, and, and so you're maintaining, you're watching these bees, you're trying to help them grow. You should be able to double or triple your bees every year. And so where I, my little slice of the pie is I'm encouraging people across the U.S. to try raising mason bees. My website, crownbees.com, helps people uh, learn what to do. And, and here's the sneaky part. Um, I'm having these people uh, sign up for bee mail, a little newsletter that goes out once a month, and encourages people to do this activity when, you know, when should they be doing it. But I'm tracking these people. And in five to seven years, you only need, you know, 50 bees at your house or 200 bees at your house, but you've been successful and you've got six or 800 at your house. Those extra 500 bees or whatever, I need to get into the commercial orchards in their region. So the big thing is, is you're thinking <clears throat> long term. You're you're this this is you're you're preparing for Plan B. I'm preparing to have the suburbia backyard gardeners raise bees for their commercial or regional orchards that don't uh, understand they need to be doing this yet. Okay, and so that because because mason bees reproduce rather slowly, mm -hmm. that it's possible that you can get the numbers built up over the next it's several gonna, years. It's going to take five or it'll. We we think this is the. Um, Orchard Bees um, Association, we think we have maybe 3 million mason bee cocoons in our hands today. That's only enough for, gosh, 10,000 acres. So in, a, in 10 years, we double our numbers every year. We think we might have a billion mason bees. That's only half a million acres. That's nothing to what we're going to need for the U.S., and that's in 10 years. So can we get backyard gardeners to supplement what we're trying to do commercially? And I'm, I'm it's a message that is um, it's, it's just beginning. I'm trying to work through the, the schematics of it. But can I get uh, suburban, uh, suburban backyards across the U.S. to be more strategic than their um, regional orchards you know, and learn to raise this bee in their backyard? And then, you know, we're going to take them later on, give it to them, please, for free. And we'll get, uh, we'll have businesses. Someone's going to be in Philadelphia. Uh, that has her or his new business, they're going to go out and pollinate crops in Pennsylvania, you know, with the bees of the Philadelphians. Same thing with Texas, same thing with Washington, Oregon. That's the vision, and I'm already doing that in the Northwest. I've got 650-some 
master gardeners, fruit club, garden club people raising bees for me. All, you know, I, I give them the bees, they raise them. Those bees are now being, um, I've, I've used probably 50,000 in orchards, uh, four different orchards this year. So it's starting. And it takes, it's, it takes time. I've got to make money doing it. You know, it does take time. It takes effort. And then I've probably spent a good 15000 to get those 600 people going. I haven't been paid yet for my commercial pollinating. That's still a trial. But in the long run, it should, um, it, it's, it's vital. Without this happening, people, we won't have fruit. Right. <clears throat> but, but, you know, there's, so it's like, there's the whole plan B aspect. Right. Okay. Where um, we could be saving our nation's food. I mean, that's, it's, it's that's quite possible sense. that um, that if if the the honeybees if they if they were gone, that would be sixty percent of our food would be gone. Right. But we would still be able to eat. We have a very bland diet. We'd still get wheat. We'd still get other things that don't we'd still get the corn. Beef. Yeah, we'd still it'd be a very bland diet. So we're not going right. to extinct. I mean, but there would be problems. I mean, there would problems. be some things that would not get pollinated. And there, there are. We, we'll find out that the mosquito actually pollinates a few things. <laughs> yeah, the but, fleas, you know, yeah. But uh, but the the, the 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 thing is, <clears throat> is that. Plan B will be um, not ready, but ready-ish, right. and and we won't be you know uh, uh, wiped out. There there'll be Plan B will be built, but it's going to take uh, a lot of people going as fast as they can trying to increase the the, uh, the, the mason bee population, which right. are a, a little on the more delicate side for uh, population growth. Right, and so for right now, I'm working on the blue orchard. Uh, I've got growers in the in the West Coast raising the bee over here. I've got a dozen, nine people on the East Coast, New Jersey, Ohio, raising their bee. And right now, um, I'm selling this bee online, so I've got those guys. I'm selling their bees back to the East Coast, my West Bees to the West Coast. That's happening for the spring mason bee. No one really knows, public-wise, what's the berry bee in the U.S. We do know that the berry bee in Oregon and California is Osmia glide, this cool little small purple bee, brilliant purple bee. I was just given 7,000 bees recently. Dave, go help start a berry bee industry in California and Oregon. Okay, so I'm just starting in a couple months on, on that industry. But no one knows what the berry bee is in Montana or, or Washington, where I live, uh, or Philadelphia. No one's tracking that down. There's no money yet. Now, the bee's there, but there's no coordination, no business coordination of maybe what your extension services already know. I spoke with a very wonderful uh, Dr. Karen uh, Goodell of Ohio just yesterday. She's got a bee that, um, I don't know, I think it comes out later on during the summer, Osmia pumoli or something like that. I didn't, I didn't write it down. Uh, she's had it for five to six years, but she hasn't transitioned this bee to an industry person yet. And I think this bee does uh, legumes, so beans and squash and whatever. I don't think anyone is raising it for commercial purposes yet. And I'm, as I spoke with her, could I get a couple thousand of those little bees and they go into straws, tiny little straws, and they have little cocoons, just similar to what I'm doing, but I want to help her transition her technology to the commercial side. And it's just a, it's a new concept. She's a very smart woman. I think she focuses on um, whatever she focuses on. She's not out there pollinating with them. 
Right. And we need to find somebody around the Ohio Basin or wherever this bee grows to begin thinking through, let's raise this en masse and let's use this as a plan B uh, for legumes in Ohio. No one that I'm aware of is doing that yet, and I'm here to help them do that. I, I just realized that, you know, when you say Plan B, it's, like, got this other meaning to it, which is awesome. I just, yeah. It's like we're poets. Who are we know it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I told you one though, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. But, uh, yeah, I, I see what, I, so, so basically it seems like more knowledge is needed, and I, I like the idea that it would be a commercial entity because suddenly it's like, you know, it, 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 there's going to be people who will stay there and keep doing it as opposed to like organizations who are like, oh, well, we're a nonprofit. Oh, we didn't get our funding this year, so we Can't all went it. home. So the, the ARSB lab out of Logan, Utah, uh, Teresa, um, or the Rosalind James is, is the director out there, wonderful person. And as we had a uh, Blue Orchard Bee uh, conference in Modesto just this last December, we called this the technology transfer. That they're kind of done. They've analyzed this blue should be, and they get it. They, it works. They're kind of done studying it. Here, everybody, go take it and go make a business out of it. Great team of scientists, and uh, through their, you know, through their leadership, Jim Kane and Teresa Pitzinger, and they're helping transfer this technology. And same with this uh, Aguaya, the uh, organ bee, uh, berry bee. They're saying, Hey, Dave, we've figured it out. We understand it. Here, go make an industry out of this. Not enough scientists are of that ilk. I, I, I can't say without, you know, with any certainty, but uh, these, this technology transfer needs to be occurring rapidly across the U.S. Find the right scientist in, in Ohio or New Jersey or whatever. Let's find someone who doesn't have a job today who wants to learn that insect and create, help be part of a new industry. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Now, <clears throat> uh, when we were talking earlier, uh, I kind of got the impression that there were a couple of great benefits. Like if you were if you were to do this and bring in mason bees to your garden or your farm, then um, there might actually be some side benefits, uh, such as even if you already have uh, a honeybee hive on your property or nearby, and you're already getting great pollination, it sounds to me like based on what we were talking about earlier you could experience even better pollination by having by having mason bees. Uh, yes, or, or other bees. So there, has, there have been experiments in the almond industry of an or situation and an and situation. They compared honeybees or the blue orchard, and after a couple of years have determined that, yep, the blue orchard, this mason bee, is an equivalent to the honeybee, and you've got 120,000 bees uh, on per acre and, and 500, so they're saying they're equivalent. But now wait, I want to clarify that point oh, a little bit on. more. 120,000 honeybees per acre is equivalent to 500 mason bees per acre. Is and that what you just said? Okay, and I think I'm going to take that back. I think it's two hives per acre, so it's probably 240,000 versus five or 600 females. So in fairness, it's probably female mason bees, so it's honeybees in the first case. So 240,000 honeybees, right? And of those, probably 120 are flying. You know, I'm trying to be specific. So 120 flying versus 500 flying are equivalent. And it, we're not saying the honeybee is any lesser because they got honey. We're just right. saying these guys pollinate 
differently. That one is a dry pollen, the mason bee, she's a horrible pollen gatherer. And she just gets it on her bristles, on her, on her abdomen, and the pollen falls off everywhere. Whereas the honeybee, and those are wonderful pollen gatherers, and hardly any falls off. They get a sticky and it sticks to their, you know, their honey pockets on their legs. So they don't really pollinate that well. But man, they've got honey. So between the two, um, you, the blue mason bee is clearly the better pollinator. It is a better. So if your mission is to pollinate those almonds, B to B, you know. Yeah, one B to one B. Okay, yeah. right. I, I'm with you. Because uh, otherwise, you got to have a, a much larger uh, honeybee army to do the pollination right. than than if you have a mason. Now you were getting to a point where you were talking about and versus or. So we just talked about or. or. So if so you were to use uh, honey or mason, they're equal. Then there you get and, and you get equality provided that there's 240 thousand of the honey versus 500 of the, of the of the mason. And these are rough numbers. So. It might be maybe 700, but it's, it's still a huge difference. So these um, a variety of companies down there have tried an and situation. And hands down, uh, you get more yield per acre when you do an and situation. So I don't know, you know, let's call it 1,000 pounds per acre. You're getting uh, 1,200 or 1,400 pounds per acre in the and Situation. So they were getting 20 to 40 percent higher yield. And I have no idea. It could be 10 percent, could be 100 percent. I don't know. But they've now said clearly we'll never do an or. We will only do an and situation. Interesting. So I don't know that the yield is probably confidential to these individual guys, but the for this purpose, it's it's a, it's interesting to hear that when you do an and situation, you get a better yield in almonds. Now, I don't know if that's the case in apples. You need to thin, so that actually works against you. You know, in cherries, you don't want to have too many cherries because then they start dropping in size, so it works against you. If you're a uh, Del Monte or a treetop trying to get um, as many apples as you can for your apple juice, it would probably work for you. You know, it, it depends it on depends. the quantity. Yeah. All right. So sometimes it's, you know, and that's we're talking the, the spring blue orchard bee, the horn-faced, which is a Japanese uh, import on the East Coast, is a good pollinator, and, and they're already using that in, um, I've got four Wisconsin farmers that I'm dealing with. They're out there trying it. I see a lot of the horn-faced in blueberry orchards out in uh, the Carolinas. Uh, you know, people are starting to think it through. There's My website is attracting um, some attention. I'm getting to talk with a lot of these Plan B farmers who are just independently trying things out, and I'm trying to be a collaborator. I'm trying to help. Uh, this is what I'm hearing from the almond industry. Try this on your apples. You know, I'm, I'm trying to increase the use of an alternate bee. So uh, we've, I think we've got the spring bee across the country uh, known, but we're significantly lack, lacking in numbers, and that's where your listeners, it would be great for them to try to raise these, let me know who they are through my B-mail you know, on, my, on my website. Uh, but then step two, I'm going to be this summer um, trying to have available a variety of straws of different sizes, uh, eight millimeter, five sixteenths of an inch is the standard spring mason bee. But other bees use different size holes. So let's have a whole bunch of little holes, and I'm, I've got 1,600 people following me. Can we get all of these 1,600 people 
putting straws in their backyard of variety sizes, and what are they going to find? Well, B is going to use those straws that I could then get ID'd by local extension services, analyzed, and grown. That's all part of this 10-year plan. But they've got to start now because it's going to take a while to get there. And I think the honeybee is nose diving faster than we're going to be able to react. So now, <clears throat> my experience up until today mm-hmm. has been that, um, oh, look at me. We're doing things for uh, uh, mason bees. And so I've got this 4 by 4 block of wood where I've drilled a whole mess of holes in it, and I've hung it up out here, and that's it. And, and yeah, they did get some bees. But now um, your technique is to use straws, and you've also got a wood approach, but it's nothing like the wood block stuff that I've seen. Okay, and and the reason that uh, why I'm different is if you bring in a, a thousand acres of whatever I'm gonna call it husbandry, where I've got a thousand sheep, a thousand dahlias. When you concentrate a lot of one thing in your area, your pests just run through there as well. It's very tough to fight. Okay, so when I've got 100 holes or 200 holes for these mason bees, nature wants to bring it back down to 15 holes an acre. I don't know, 10 holes, 15, whatever, whatever it is. Nature's going to try to upset you because you're unbalanced against nature. If you have just two, I'm going to say, we've got our block of wood, you can't control the pests inside that block of wood. And uh, your first year you'll do well. Your second year, you're going to probably only get half the bees. By your third or fourth year, you're probably only getting a tenth of the bees back. And within four or five years, your block of wood is just a cemetery, Mesa Bee Cemetery. So my, where I help people be successful is to observe what's happening. Try something small. You know, here's get a couple straws. Get trays of wood that you can open up and look at in, in October. Look at what pests are occurring. And, and respond. So the next year, you, you, you're able to have pulled your cocoons out. Uh, you're a little more successful, and you open them up again in October. And it's just a very small uh, plan check due. Uh, look at something. Learn from it. Uh, try something different. Look at it again. Try something different and be successful. So drilled blocks of wood are actually the worst thing you can do. Plastic Starbucks straws are equally as bad. Not saying that Starbucks has bad straws, uh, but the pollen uh, is a very wet substance, and it needs to wick into the wood. It needs to wick into the paper. Uh. And if it doesn't, uh, if it can't wick, then you just get moldy cocoons and you lose most of your bees. Again, you know, uh, wood is the natural environment. Reeds we've got, and then uh, paper tubes. So those those three things are to be successful, which you should be using. Okay, so now, um, do, you, do you have a kit that you sell to people? Kind of, of course, go to my yeah. website. So now, I, I've not been to your website. Just as you have <laughs> not seen my calling classes <laughs> order video, oh, I have not been to your website. It is a bandwidth I, 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 I heard about you through the grapevine, and somebody was very emphatic that I needed to stop and see you, and I'm glad that I have, but I did not take the time to do my research and first look at your website. Okay, so to summarize the website, uh, It's primarily built as an educational tool. I want people to be successful. And here's how. Here's pictures. Here's, you know, here's for the backyard gardener. Here's for the commercial orchard. A lot of pages. And actually, if you're brand new to this, 
just look at a few pages. Just go to the gardener, look at the getting started. On the back side of that, yes, I've got tons of, of um, tons of straws and reeds and, uh, and things to buy. In the springtime, I've got bees to buy. Um, the intent is for the people to learn and be successful on their own. And I do have things at a very cheap price because I want I don't want to get rich. I want people to raise bees successfully. And so I'm trying to just get people started with as cheap as cost. And I've got beautiful, cool things. And if you want to go high end and spend a lot of money, go ahead. I've got little starter kits that are $15. You know, just just go try it. So for a $15 starter kit? You've got uh, 25 straws and, and a little house that's pretty waterproof. It ships nice. You put it together and hang it on the sunny side of your wall. And um, if you have mud around you, you've got pollen around you, and if you have, if you have native spring bees around you, they should go in. You know, this seems like something like uh, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts yeah. kind of thing would really groove on. Or, or 4-H. Homeschooling. Or homeschool, yeah, yeah. All of these places, yes. But we only know five bees of the world. There's only there's honeybees, bumblebees, old hornets, all wasps, and my fifth finger here is everything else, which is 4,000 species in the U.S. alone. People only know five of those insects. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's changing because of the um, media talking about the honeybee disappearing colony class disorder. I think people are starting to recognize there are bees in their yard. You know, a while ago, your gardener only talked about the plants. Four or five years ago, they started talking about the soils and more organics and and I think people are now recognizing another element is of the bees. I don't know what the, you know, there might be four or five other elements out there, but I think people are just now starting to realize that bees are an important part of the environment other than soil and the plant. Right. And, and so now to qualify what you're saying, uh, you know, for the general public, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, 20 years ago people talked about dolphin-safe tuna. Sure. And so, and it does seem like the general public, you know, thought dirt and soil were the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Now, in the last few years, I think that they are paying a little bit more attention to the concept of soil and what does that mean. Um, whereas, you know, granted, there were some people that were, you know, gardeners and they're bonkers about soil, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. But for the general public, there's, it's, it's only starting to get to be more common knowledge very recently. Although, you know, you, I, I think I would go so far as to say 50 years ago, 60 years ago, people knew a lot more. Because they had gardens. Everybody had a garden. Well, not everybody, but damn near everybody had a garden. Whereas now, it's lost. Yeah, it's kind of lost. A L- yeah. little bit. A yeah. little bit. Yeah. Lost-ish. Lost-ish. Uh, and so, but yeah, I okay. So now, I I feel like I thought I was pretty knowledgeable in this space up until I arrived at, <laughs> at your doorstep today. And, Sorry. And and uh, I I feel like I've learned a lot. I'm still there's still a long ways to go, but it does seem to me like I, I really like the idea of not only is it a plan B just in case everything goes awful in plan A, but on top of that, just a good if you do both, if you have your honeybees and you have your mason bees, then it's like you'll get better pollination. Yeah. Um, and it's better for the environment. You're actually learning um, by having your own insect in your backyard. All of a sudden, you're realizing whether you want to give these bees a name. I shouldn't be spraying pesticides and insecticides in my yard. And believe it or not, these bees will be on my fence line. You know, I should be talking with my neighbors. I've actually got a little part of my website that has, um, hey, print this off and hand this to your neighbor, you know. 
You know, awesome. well, I, I want them to, you know, I want people to stop doing hey, it. I have, I have like little insects I'm trying yeah, to raise my little... Here, read this. And if that fails, give them some mason bees and all of a sudden they'll start caring for them. Oh, hey, there's, there's the awesome Christmas gift for it this is. year. Yeah, give your neighbor that's using pesticides. Hey, look, here's a present for 15 little cocoons, you know. And yeah. how to raise them. So I'm trying to think of these things. Ooh, wow, that I like that because you're right. You know, that might be the hugest thing this year is is the idea of giving people mason bees and yeah. say, oh, by the way, don't use pesticides because yeah, yeah. it'll kill your bees. You know, um, uh, next thing you know, we might get a huge drop in the number amount of pesticides being used in the backyard. Uh, well, and which is where most pesticide pollution happens. Right, and golf is, courses. Well, see, the yeah. thing is, on golf courses and on farms, they use, I mean, they're trying to save money. Right. They'll use just the smallest amount that they can get by with. But usually, it's the it's the people who are uh, using pesticides at home that it's like, you know, well, if, uh, if, if a cup is good, 10 cups must be 10 times better. And, and so then um, uh, the problem is most, like 90% of pesticide pollution happens from um, urban and suburban areas. So I, I spoke with an organic, uh, large organic um, company, not to be named. Okay. Um, uh, it's on my website. And I... Um, <laughs> Is it named on your website? Yeah, it's Dr. Earth. They're a really good outfit, and they have a lot of good organic stuff. Okay, so I'm, I'm talking with their, their big guy, from what I understand. Okay, okay. all right. And they had um, organic um, insecticide. Okay, so uh, I right. actually sent him a little, hey, you know, dear, dear info, whatever. I said, so does this insecticide kill honeybees or, you know, kill bees? And they said, well, yeah, it kills everything. I said, well, but it's killing beneficial insects as well. They said, well, don't spray it during the bee window. I said, well, what's the bee window? Well, between 10 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I said, well, this is kind of funny, but my mason bees are actually up at the crack of dawn, and they're out there at 7 o'clock starting away, so what about that? Oh, well, we weren't aware of that. Uh, so I said, so now that you're aware of it, what are you going to do? I said, well, when we, he said, I, I had their um, president, very nice guy. Um, he did say, and I don't know, I haven't followed through. He said, well, when we change our label, we'll actually see if we can change our, our label. I said, well, my two cents, I always kind of give two cents, you know, or, you know, give proactive statements. I said, if you have to spray, Look at what you're going to spray for about 10 minutes, and there's something. If there's something buzzing on that thing that looks beneficial, come back the next day half an hour earlier. You know, and there's something spraying then. This will take you a couple of days to get to the right window, but you know, if you have to spray, be careful with what you're spraying. Well, now, okay, I'm trying to be proactive because people right. will buy it, and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to give good wisdom. Right yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I. Uh, so here's the funny thing. Here's a really funny thing. Uh, and that is that uh, um, I wrote this article about lawn care. And there was, there's this great site called Copyscape. And, 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 and basically I said, okay, here's my lawn care. Dear Copyscape, here's my lawn care article. It went out and it found like three different places that had copied my article verbatim. Thank you. One of them was Dr. Earth. And so I contacted them, and I said, hey, you know, and I, I tried to be nice about it. You know, rather than, like, um, having a full copy of my whole article, which, you know, I didn't give you permission to do and everything, uh, could, how about this idea? Could you, like, maybe quote, like, your favorite couple of paragraphs and say the rest of the article is available? Follow, follow this link. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So um, their first reaction was that they wrote it and I'm lying and I now owe them money. Whoops. Yeah. And so then I, I went out to the Wayback Machine and I showed them how I, I first published it out on the mighty Internet in 1995, but then the Wayback Machine didn't come around until a little bit later. And so, but it picked it up then. And, um, and it shows that, you know, not showing up on their site until, you know, like, Ten months ago, hmm. so um, it would seem like we have a little difference of opinion here. Yeah, yeah, like like maybe one of us is a lying sack of shit, and it looks like it's not me. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, but anyway, so I I went back and forth, back and forth, and um, uh, they threatened me a bunch of different ways, and then finally they came around and they made they made the appropriate changes, and it, so then so now it's out there to my satisfaction. I think I did have to mention lawsuits and things like that, and but now it's but. It was like, um, boy, put a bad taste in my mouth. But I'm thankful that they're out there trying to portray and trying to teach people on organics. That's true. And, you know, I, uh, you know, and they use my words to talk about lawns. There you go. There you go. <laughs> How brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, uh, uh, you know, there's all these people trying to sell organic stuff. And a, and a big part of permaculture is, like, we're even beyond organic. And so. Oh, please. Uh, and I wouldn't know. I yeah, so we're you know the, the organic. We don't use pesticides, even the organic oh. pesticides. So what we'll do is, if you've got some kind of pest problem, it usually is a sign that you don't have enough diversity, enough polyculture. Oh. And so there's plants that you seem to be missing in your polyculture group. I, I'm up putting five thousand mason bees up in Squim, a, a tiny town north. West in Washington. I'm and, going there in a few days. Okay, and so here's this um, organic farmer that uh, we're, we're going to be putting these blue orchard bees on his site, and he's talking to us about having a Vesalia, I think it's this flower on the left-hand side, big, big half-acre. Well, why is that? He goes, well, the parasitic wasp likes that flower and will be taking the aphids off my Brussels sprouts. Nice idea. And so he's a very with it, you know, very very, man, I'm sure if he's a farmer already, he should be. But uh, <laughs> what a wonderful guy. So we just said, all right, we're going to put our bees out here for free. We're, you know, this is a trial run. We want you to, you know, because his honeybee, honeybee hives have failed. He had 10 hives and it just failed. Okay. And so he seems like a very with a guy. I don't know what he's, you know, for whatever reason, his honeybee hives failed and we're his perfect answer. Now, this is for free out there right there. Next year, we'll have to figure out how we can we can get some money out of it ourselves, whether it's turnips for, for us for, you know, for free, I don't know. But but um, I was amazed that this guy was, um, I thought, uh, out there on the fringe of a bell curve of getting it. Good guy, Josh. I'll give you, if, you, if you're out there to swim, it'd be nice to go by and meet, meet him. Meet Josh. Meet Josh. Okay. The farmer. I, I think when I'm out there, uh, I'm going to be seeing Forrest Schomer. Uh, who has done a lot with uh, uh, um, collecting seeds and starting from starting perennials from seeds and things of that nature. He's, he's a wild crafting kind of guy, a big permaculture guy. Uh, and we're also going to be seeing a fellow that's got um, an alternative breed of um, livestock guardian dog, and and so uh, is doing some dog breeding out there. I meet a few different dog breeders for for oh, farmers. Fun. Yeah. So um, you know, plus it's just it's a pretty area. You know, oh, it's yeah. nice. To drive out there. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. So, anything else left about um, Plan B? Uh, probably not. I mean, it's got to go slow. Well, 
you know, I thought I I liked the wood things. So, I, so you just showed me wood trays. Yeah, is that what you call them? Is wood trays? For now, lack of a better, maybe I'm a, I'll call them a better name. I'll patent it. You know? It looks like it looks like kind of a a birdhouse, an open faced birdhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was shaped like a raindrop. Which was really cool. Yeah, it was built by uh, some Guatemalans that I'm part of a whole different discussion of um, yeah, sustainability and creation jobs and, and getting um, money back to the people that actually make this and so help them be successful. So all the money, all the proceeds from these little houses go back to the Guatemalans. Well, uh, so I, uh, we're, we're out there looking at it, and I'm thinking, like, each one of those looked a bit like a piece of art. Yeah, kind of. Right. And so it was really neat. And, and then they're full of straws. And, right, straws and reeds. Mm-hmm. And then, then sometimes I'd see some other, you know, tubes or something. And, right. and, what, but, but it, and then the, the last one out there is a series of wood trays that if you could picture, you've drilled a bunch of holes into a block of wood, and you've taken your saw and cut through the middle of all these rows of wood, now you've got a series of trays with half on top, half on hole on the bottom. What this allows you to do is to uh, harvest these bees in October. That you can pop the band that you know you've got a belt around these things that hold the trays together. You can now pop that belt off and um, just scoop the cocoons out and separate the pests from the cocoons. And it's a very easy um, way to be successful. It's not cheap. Over the long term, you're not buying a bunch of straws every year. You've just made one purchase, and away you go. So the straws only last a year. Should last just a bit. Yeah, you should be only using your straws a year or so because of the pests that will build up inside them. Okay. All right. And by pests, you mean funguses and viruses. Uh, and the pollen and mite is the, is the uh, pollen mite okay. uh, eats pollen. Okay. Just, they, that's the biggest issue. It's on the website. There's pictures of it. The pollen right. mite is the predator of, of prey across the U.S. Oh, okay. All right. All so right. We we battle that everywhere and and being able to harvest, you, you can't harvest bees from inside a block of wood because the polymites just win out. But in a, a means to open these straws or reeds or these wood trays up, you can now separate the good guys from the bad guys. Simple. Wow, yeah. So it's a, it's a bit of a system. And, and um, uh, I just can't help but think that Every ten-year-old kid in the world wants to do this. Um, it, it is. A, it's, see monkeys out there in your backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It just—it just seems uh, pretty powerfully cool, um, and it seems crazy easy, simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just a matter of uh, a little bit of knowledge. And we were standing out there, and we saw um, uh, females going in and out, and we saw you showed me the birth of well, not birth, but you know the emergence. The emergence of a of a, of a little boy. Now, uh, did anyone, as you put your hand over the front of these holes, did anyone seem to be attacking you and kind of pissed off? Yeah, no, you told no, me that the boys don't. don't sting at all, ever. And and the girls, because they're just descending a couple eggs inside there, they don't really care. You can put your finger over their hole and they just land on your finger and wait for you to move out of the way. Very, very gentle. And one of the questions, can you, if you do get stung, and I've gotten stung over 20 years, 17 years, I've gotten stung twice, kind of like a little mosquito bite. But someone said, Dave, can you get an allergic reaction? Can you get anaphylactic shock from, from a mason bee? Good question. I reached out to the science community, and they were, because of their government, they were very long in response. But one of the guys came back and said, no. He said, first of all, you've got to get stung once. He said, then you have to get enough venom in you to create a, a reaction to it. He said, then you've got to get stung twice. He said, you just can't get it. 
so these are very most I'm going to say a lot of your mason bees are all gentle and uh, an easy educational tool well okay so first of all you need 200 times fewer bees to do your pollination work so right there I think you have 200 times less chance of getting stung. <laughs> True. True. And then, and then on top of that, it seems like they just aren't as. I mean, you can, there are there are um, uh, varieties of honeybee out there that just tend to not want to sting much. Hmm. But um, I would, my impression from talking to you is is that these bees are even less interested in stinging people. You're more of an obstacle than a threat. Right. And so it seems like your odds of getting stung are probably about, so it would be 200 times maybe five, so a 1,000 times less? Yeah. I mean, really, the, where I've gotten stung is I had my hand into a big bucket of these things, and they were all mad at me because I had them in a, in a, I wasn't letting them out, and I was releasing them in an orchard. So they're really upset. And they're really active. And I reach my hand in there, and I'm grabbing a scoop of them. And by accident, I squeezed two of my fingers together. And between two of my fingers was some female that said, ouch. And she stung me. But I wasn't quite sure I got stung, but I think I did. So I had to shake my hand a little bit. And I'm not pulling the bees off with my other hand. And finally, sure enough, there's a little tiny white prick between two of my fingers that I got stung. And I told them I got stung. I mean, it was kind of a neat thing because it's, <laughs> it's so hard to get stung. You know? It's about time. Yeah, finally. Here I am. You know, quick. <laughs> Get the medic. <laughs> but it, it, it was like a mosquito bite. Yes. Yeah. So very, if people are concerned, and unfortunately, there are bees out there that sting, and yeah. therefore all bees sting, you know, okay. under the same premise. If you get hit, you know, walking across the street, never go across the street again. You know, well, so how long does it take for your, your bee sting welt to three, go away? Three minutes. Three like, minutes. I mean, really, it was just gone. I mean, body okay. absorption is just gone. So I, I, I was kind of... I was going to go grab my camera because I wanted to take a little picture of it, and it was gone by the time I found my camera. Unlike you, we're always on you. <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't find where it got stung. So it really is a very mild. The blue orchard. And I can't say this is the truth of the aglaia out of Oregon or the pumeri out of Wisconsin, but they should follow the same path. They're they're very gentle. They have nothing to defend. And they're, you know, a beneficial insect. All right. So, uh, man, we've, have we covered everything? That that hasn't been covered, just slip on, on my website. And it's just me for, you know, crownbees.com. Yeah. If you look to my website, um, you'll find a lot of information there. And that that um, isn't there, ask me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm approachable and I'm just, you know, I'm a regular person. And info at, at Crown Bees and I'll respond to you probably that day. So after do, you, do you have forums? I'm only one person. I, I do have a blog. I don't have a forum yet, and so I. So I, we have forums at Permies. Well, and I'd be, be part of that. You know, so we've got we've got a forum called Critter Care. There we go. And um, uh, you know, to reach inside, I'd have to look at your forums. We could we could facilitate, you know, whatever. You know, if, 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 like if you've got a, if, if there's like you know five or six main questions or five or six main areas of discussion, then we can get those going, and then you could. Uh, you if, know. if people have those questions, I'm here to help. I mean, okay. my intent right. is to help people be successful. Maybe the thing to do is if if people that are listening to this podcast have a question for you, 
we could get some threads started at Permies and have you out. Be just easy. There's another. Um, yeah, that's, that'd be good. BB Tech is another one out there. I'm a moderator on a on a Honeybee website that has some little um, Mason Bee stuff. But that okay. I'd be I'd be honored to be part of your forums. <laughs> I might have to go All see right. another video or two. You know. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the, the Colony Collapse sort of one. I mean, it seems like relevant. A lot of what drives you is the Colony Collapse order issue. Yes, I should yeah. probably. I humbly apologize, and I will, <laughs> before the evening's out, <laughs> find that puppy. And go go look over. at that. Yeah. So uh, um, I, you know, I wish I could could drink, come up, come up with a full list of 12 things, but, I mean, I think we, we touched on we quite a few. Uh, and so all, to, for, to rise the Mason Bee, to raise the Mason Bee successfully, you, you need um, a sunny wall in the morning. You need a whole... For the bee to go into, so a variety of sizes, you know, depends upon the species that you're going to attract. You, you need pollen, all right. Uh, you need the material that the bee is going to use to make their mason. So for the spring one, it's mud, just clay mud. For other ones, it's leaves. They'll find their own. And then um, lastly, you know, uh, a little house around those straws just to keep them dry. So sun, pollen, mud. And you know, and away you go. It's not that it's really not that tough, and it's and it's low cost. So yeah, try it out. I, we please try it out. Ask me questions. I want you to be successful. Sign up on the email. It's very easy on my website, and then I'm going to hopefully help you be successful. That in five years, I'm going to reach back out and ask for your excess bees. Those are part of the plan B, and those will be going to regional orchards or crops around you. Big picture. Thanks, Paul. Truly appreciate this. This was a good uh, this was a good sit down. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I had fun too. I learned a lot. There you go. All right. Well, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about bees of all types, homesteading and permaculture all the time. 